Part Five of Queen of the Martian Catacombs by Lee Douglas Brackett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Five. He lay half stunned for a moment; his breath knocked out of him. There was a terrible reptilian screaming, sounding thin through the roar of the wind. Vague shapes bolted past him, and twice he was nearly crushed by their trampling hoofs. Luhar and Frika must have waited their chance. It was so beautifully easy. Leave Stark alone and afoot, and the storm and the desert between them would do the work, with no blame attached to any man. Stark got to his feet, and a human body struck him at the knee so that he went down again. He grappled with it, snarling, before he realized that the flesh between his hands was soft and draped in silken cloth. Then he saw that he was holding Berold. "'It was I!' she gasped. Uh, "'Not Fiona!' Her words reached him very faintly, though he knew she was yelling at the top of her lungs. She must have been knocked from her own mount when Luhar thrust between them. Gripping her tightly so that she should not be blown away, Stark struggled up again. With all his strength it was almost impossible to stand. Blinded, deafened, half-strangled, he fought his way forward a few paces, and suddenly one of the pack-beasts loomed shadow-like beside him, going by with a rush and a squeal. By the grace of Providence and his own swift reflexes he caught its pack-lashings, clinging with the tenacity of a man determined not to die. It floundered about, dragging them, until Beryl managed to grasp its trailing halter-rope. Between them they fought the creature down. Stark clung to its head, while the woman clambered to its back, twisting her arm through the straps of the pad. A silken scarf whipped toward him. He took it and tied it over the head of the beast so it could breathe, and after that it was quieter. There was no direction, no sight of anything in that howling inferno. The caravan seemed to have been scattered like a drift of autumn leaves. Already, in the few brief moments he had stood still, Stark's legs were buried to the knees in a substratum of sand that rolled like water. He pulled himself free and started on, going nowhere, remembering Kynon's words. Beryl ripped her thin robe apart and gave him another strip of silk for himself. He bound it over his nose and eyes, and some of the choking and the blindness abated. Stumbling, staggering, beaten by the wind as a child is beaten by a strong man, Stark went on, hoping desperately to find the main body of the caravan, and knowing somehow that the hope was futile. The hours that followed were nightmare. He shut his mind to them in a way that a civilized man would have found impossible. In his childhood there had been days and nights, and the problems had been simple ones. How to survive one span of light that one might then struggle to survive the span of darkness that came after. One thing, one danger at a time. Now there was a single necessity. Keep moving. Forget tomorrow, or what happened to the caravan, or where the little Fiana with her bright eyes may be. Forget thirst, and the pain of breathing, and the fiery lash of sand on naked skin. Only don't stand still. 
It was growing dark when the beast fell against a half-buried boulder and snapped its foreleg. Stark gave it a quick and merciful death. They took the straps from the pad and linked themselves together. Each took as much food as he could carry, and Stark shouldered the single skin of water that fortune had vouchsafed them. They staggered on, and Beryl did not whimper. Night came, and still the Kamsin blew. Stark wondered at the woman's strength, for he had to help her only when she fell. He had lost all feeling himself. His body was merely a thing that continued to move only because it had been ordered not to stop. The haze in his own mind had grown as thick as the black obscurity of the night. Beryl had ridden all day, but he had walked, and there was an end even to his strength. He was approaching it now, and was too weary even to be afraid. He became aware at some indeterminate time that Beryl had fallen and was dragging her weight against the straps. He turned blindly to help her up. She was saying something, crying his name, striking at him so that he should hear her words and understand. At last he did. He pulled the wrappings from his face and breathed clean air. The wind had fallen. The sky was growing clear. He dropped in his tracks and slept, with the exhausted woman half-dead beside him. Thirst brought them both awake in the early dawn. They drank from the skin, and then sat for a time looking at the desert and at each other, thinking of what lay ahead. "'Do you know where we are?' Stark asked. "'Not exactly.' Beryl's face was shadowed with weariness. It had changed, and somehow, to Stark, it had grown more beautiful, because there was no weakness in it. She thought a minute, looking at the sun. "'The wind blew from the north,' she said. "'Therefore we have come south from the track. Sinharat lies that way, across the waste they call the Belly of Stones.' She pointed to the north and east. "'How far?' Seven, eight days afoot. Stark measured their supply of water and shook his head. It'll be dry walking. He rose and took up the skin. Beryl came beside him without a word. Her red hair hung loose over her shoulders. The rags of her silken robe had been torn away by the wind, leaving her only the loose skirt of the desert women and her belt and collar of jewels. She walked erect with a steady, swinging stride, and it was almost impossible for Stark to remember her as she had been, riding like a lazy queen in her scarlet litter. There was no way to shelter themselves from the midday sun. The sun of Mars at its worst, however, was only a pale candle beside the sun of Mercury, and it did not bother Stark. He made Beryl lie in the shadow of his own body and he watched her face, relaxed and unfamiliar, in sleep. For the first time, then, he was conscious of a strangeness in her. He had seen so little of her before in Valkus and almost nothing on the trail. Now there was little of her mind or heart she could conceal from him. Or was there? There were moments when she slept, 
when the shadows of strange dreams crossed her face. Sometimes, in the unguarded moment of waking, he would see in her eyes a look he could not read, and his primitive senses quivered with a vague ripple of warning. Yet all through those blazing days and frosty nights, tortured with thirst and weary to exhaustion, Berold was magnificent. Her white skin was darkened by the sun, and her hair became a wild red mane, but she smiled and set her feet resolutely by his, and Stark thought she was the most beautiful creature he had ever seen. On the fourth day they climbed a scarp of limestone worn in ages past by the sea, and looked out over the place called the Belly of Stones. The sea-bottom curved downward below them into a sort of gigantic basin, the farther rim of which was lost in shimmering waves of heat. Stark thought that never, even on Mercury, had he seen a place more cruel and utterly forsaken of gods or men. It seemed as though some primal glacier must have met its death here in the dim dawn of Mars, hollowing out its own grave. The body of the glacier had melted away, but its bones were left. Bones of basalt, of granite, of marble, and porphyry, of every conceivable color and shape and size, picked up by the ice as it marched southward from the pole, and dropped here as a corn to mark its passing. The Belly of Stones. Stark thought that its other name was Death. For the first time Beryl faltered. She sat down and bent her head over her hands. "'I am tired,' she said. "'Also, I am afraid.' Stark asked, "'Has it ever been crossed?' "'Once. But they were a war-party, mounted and well supplied.' Stark looked out across the stones. "'We will cross it,' he said. Beryl raised her head. "'Somehow I believe you.' She rose slowly and put her hands on his breast, over the strong beating of his heart. "'Give me your strength, wild man,' she whispered. "'I shall need it.' He drew her to him and kissed her, and it was a strange and painful kiss, for the lips were cracked and bleeding from their terrible thirst. Then they went down together into the place called the Belly of Stones. The desert had been a pleasant and kindly place. Stark looked back upon it with longing. And yet this inferno of blazing rock was so like the valleys of his boyhood that it did not occur to him to lie down and die. They rested for a time in the sheltered crevice under a great leaning slab of blood-red stone, moistening their swollen tongues with a few drops of stinking water from the skin. At nightfall they drank the last of it, but Beryl would not let him throw the skin away darkness and a lunar silence. The chill air sucked the day's heat out of the rocks, and the iron frost came down, so that Stark and the red-haired woman must keep moving or freeze. Stark's mind grew clouded. He spoke from time to time in a croaking whisper, dropping back into the harsh mother-tongue of the twilight belt. 
It seemed to him that he was hunting, as he had so many times before, in the waterless places, for the blood of the great lizard would save him from thirst. But nothing lived in the belly of stones. Nothing but the two who crept and staggered across it under the low moons. Beryl fell and could not rise again. Stark crouched beside her. Her face stared up at him, white in the moonlight, her eyes burning and strange. "'I will not die,' she whispered, not to him, but to the gods. "'I will not die!' And she clawed the sand and the bitter rocks, dragging herself onward. It was uncanny, the madness that she had for life. Stark raised her up and carried her. His breath came in deep, sobbing gasps. After a while he too fell. He went on like a beast on all fours, dragging the woman. He knew dimly that he was climbing. There was a glimmering of dawn in the sky. His hand slipped on a lip of sand, and he went rolling down a smooth slope. At length he stopped and lay on his back like a dead thing. The sun was high when consciousness returned to him. He saw Beryl lying near him and crawled to her, shaking her until her eyes opened. Her hands moved feebly and her lips formed the same four words, I will not die. Stark strained his eyes to the horizon, praying for a glimpse of Sinharat, but there was nothing, only emptiness and sand. With great difficulty he got the woman to her feet, supporting her. He tried to tell her that they must go on, but he could no longer form the words. He could only gesture and urge her forward in the direction of the city. But she refused to go. Too far die without water. He knew that she was right, but still he was not ready to give up. She began to move away from him toward the south, and he thought that she had gone mad and was wondering. Then he saw that she was peering with awful intensity at the line of the scarp that formed this wall of the belly of stones. It rose into a great ridge, serrated like the backbone of a whale, and some three miles away a long dorsal fin of reddish rock curved out into the desert. Beryl made a little sobbing noise in her throat. She began to plod toward the distant promontory. Stark caught up to her. He tried to stop her, but she would not be stopped turning a feral glare upon him. She croaked, Water! and pointed. He was sure now that she was mad. He told her so, forcing the painful words out of his throat, reminding her of Sinharat and that she was going away from any possible help. She said again, quite sanely, Too far! Two, three, Days without water, she pointed. Monastery, old well, a chance. Stark decided that he had little to lose by trusting her. He nodded and went with her toward the curve of rock. 
The three miles might have been three hundred. At last they came up under the ragged cliffs, and there was nothing there but sand. Stark looked at the woman. A great rage and a deep sense of futility came over him. They were indeed lost. But Beryl had gone a few steps farther. With a hoarse cry she bent over what had seemed merely a slab of stone fallen from the cliff, and Stark saw that it was a carven pillar half buried. He was now able to make out the mounded shape of a ruin of which only the foundations and a few broken columns were left. For a long while Beryl stood by the pillar, her eyes closed. Stark got the uncanny feeling that she was visualizing the place as it had been, though the walls must have been dust a thousand years ago. Presently she moved. He followed her, and it was strange to see her on the naked sand treading the arbitrary patterns of vanished corridors. She came to a halt in a broad flat space that might once have been a central courtyard. There she fell on her knees and began to dig. Stark got down beside her. They scrabbled like a pair of dogs in the yielding sand. Stark's nails slipped across something hard, and there was a yellow glint through the dusty ochre. Within a few minutes they had bared a golden cover six feet across, very massive and wonderfully carved with the symbols of some lost god of the sea. Stark struggled to lift the thing away. He could not move it. Then Beryl pressed a hidden spring, and the cover slid back of itself. Beneath it, sweet and cold, protected through all these ages, water stirred gently against mossy stones. An hour later Stark and Beryl lay sleeping, soaked to the skin, their very hair dripping with the blessed dampness. That night, when the low moons roved over the desert, they sat by the well, drowsy with an animal sense of rest and repletion. And Stark looked at the woman and said, I know you now. What do you know, wild man? Stark said quietly, You are a Rama. She did not answer at once. Then she said, I was bred in these deserts. Is it so strange that I should know of this well? Strange that you didn't mention it before. You were afraid, weren't you, that if you led me here your secret would come out. But it was that or die. He leaned forward, studying her. If you had led me straight to the well I might not have wondered. But you had to stop and remember how the halls were built and where the doorways were that led to the inner court. You lived in this place when it was whole, and no one, not even Kynon himself, knows of it but you. You dream, wild man. The moon is in your eyes. Stark shook his head slowly. I know. She laughed and stretched her arms wide on the sand. But I am young, she said, and men have told me I am beautiful. It is good to be young, for youth has nothing to do with ashes and empty skulls. 
She touched his arm, and little darts of fire went through his flesh, warm from his fingertips. Forget your dreams, wild man. They're madness, gone with the morning. He looked down at her in the clear pale light, and she was young and beautifully made, and her lips were smiling. He bent his head. Her arms went round him, her hair blew soft against his cheek. Then, suddenly, she set her teeth cruelly into his lip. He cried out and thrust her away, and she sat back on her heels, mocking him. That, she said, is because you called Fianna's name instead of mine when the storm broke. Stark cursed her. There was a taste of blood in his mouth. He reached out and caught her, and again she laughed, a peculiarly sweet, wicked sound. The wind blew over them, sighing, and the desert was very still. For two days there remained among the ruins. At evening of the second day Stark filled the water-skin, and Berold replaced the golden cover on the well. They began the last long march toward Sinharat. End of Part 5